Screenshots. Well. Oh no, I don't know what's going on. Apparently I'm screenshotting the wrong thing. Okay, worst launch of the whole video intro thing, so I apologize, guys. <laughs> Trying to increase the production value, but uh uh, still have a few kinks we need to work out clearly. Uh, thanks everybody for watching this week. Uh, we have the the great Clackamas Coot is joining us. Thanks a lot for joining us this week. Oh, you're welcome, and uh, really appreciate the invitation. I did a little reading this afternoon to get up to date. Well, not up to date, but um, my knowledge of which is limited, but about aquaponics from a historical perspective from some of the Buddhist monks in Thailand to, to Aztecs and Mayas here in the Western Hemisphere. So, yeah, fascinating for sure. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us this week. Um, this is uh, episode 227 of the Growing With Fishes podcast. <clears throat> uh, if you guys are joining us, um, be sure to also check out the Potent Ponics YouTube uh, channel as well. We have lots of other video content, including uh, uh, recent uploads of uh, new talks from the virtual aquaponic cannabis conference we hosted a few months ago. Uh, I've been breaking those down into uh, one hour talks uh, based on the speakers, so you can definitely check those out. Uh, we also have an interview on the Autoflower show as well. Um, we will be uh, uh, having him on here in the future. Um, so uh, definitely check that out. And uh, you can check out um, uh, our class over apmjclass.com and uh, the nutrients over apmjnutes.com. All right, thanks a lot for joining us. And um, uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about um, your, uh, yourself. I think a lot of people have heard uh, heard your name or, or heard your soil mix, but don't really know much about you. So uh, um, uh, tell us a little bit about um, how you got started into soil science. Um, you know, what, what kind of, um, uh, you know, I, 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 your particular soil mix is probably used by more, um, you know, uh, uh, especially a, a newer organic growers before they, they really fine tune their stuff on there uh, or really um, uh, look to learn, uh, to learn more and combine new things. It's, it's one of the best platforms for people to use. Uh, you know, something they can kind of stick the plants in and, and they just, you know, will, will succeed. Um, so uh, th uh, thanks a lot for that. And, and tell us about, you know, kind of how that all came to be. Well, in the, uh, around 2007, I guess it was, <clears throat> I uh, decided to get a card, uh, a medical card here in Oregon, not because I needed permission from the state of Oregon to grow cannabis, but what I wanted was the access to all these grains that if you didn't have them, you just didn't know what you were doing. So they had these private uh, websites that you had to register and show, you know, prove that you were legit. And so under Oregon law, you could sell medicine, seeds, clone, whatever. It's all legal, right? As long as both parties were. Uh, card holders and uh, I mean I've been growing since I don't know 46 I guess or 76 or 40 45 years 
So I never got involved in the scene. Um, but in this medical thing, what I couldn't believe is how these poor people were getting ripped off, many of whom were elderly. You know, their insurance was gone. They're barely hanging on, you know, Social Security. And you got some really unscrupulous people heading up supposed organizations that's there to work for the Oregon card holders, and it was anything but that. So it pissed me off. So I just decided to declare war, and uh, it wasn't much of a war. I mean, not hard to go up against uh, Ocean Forest, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And um, I met a guy over in, across the river in Southern Washington, and I was his first customer, and he had a worm farm, and he was. His goal was, uh, or business model was, he was going to raise worms and sell those to people who wanted to do recycling or whatever, fishing, whatever, but never even thought about or didn't consider the uh, the compost, you know, the, anyway, so I got some of his castings or they're not, I use the word castings, but you can't buy pure casting. So vermicompost is what it really is. So I mixed up some soil just based on an old recipe from 1938 from Cornell University called the Cornell Mix, a real exercise in minimalism. And uh, I had far better results doing that than all of these boutique soils that were costing insane amount of money. Oh, and then you got to get the new program. You can't just get the soil. You got to you know, 20 bottles and check the runoff in a pH meter, you know, um, which I've never owned one in 45 years and never used one. So I'm missing out, I guess. Um, and I started just sharing with people and refined it and they got it down to the most minimal amount of materials possible to be able to grow a plant, regardless whether it's cannabis or tomato or whatever, successfully without going crazy with all this running around and, uh, you know, worried about this and worried about that. You know, it's not supposed to be like that. A garden is supposed to be fun. And, and, and at the very least productive. I found that using these products in their to go through the whole thing, you know, with the uh, amendments and their their newts, their bottle this and bottle that. Oh my God, um, you needed a spreadsheet. Some of them were on spreadsheets. You know, here, here's your feeding program. I just like, God, this is nuts. But um, that's how I got started. A few people started putting it together and and I've never once had anybody say you know it's the worst garden I ever had. It's certainly the easiest, I can say that, you know. The soil is made up of three components, uh, sphagnum peat moss, uh, pumice, which is volcanic glass, so that's inert, and then vermicompost, a little bit of rock dust, some limestone for calcium carbonate, kelp, and neem. That's it. You're done.
Oh yeah, barley, malted barley. It'll enhance and increase your uh, fungal colonies but in dramatic amounts. If a person doesn't like to see mycelium all on the surface of their pots, you don't want to be using barley because that's what you're going to end up with. I think I think a lot of people these days are are looking for that though. Fortunately, <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's the cheapest. You'll notice that everything I use is okay. Barley's under a dollar a pound. Uh, kelp is uh, yeah. Let's see for a cup. Eight ounces. Hit. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, it's under a dollar a pound. For the amount that you you know I suggest using, the, the big stickler is neem. Um, I mean it's coming all the way from India, so obviously uh, you know you're paying for that, but also the amount that it it uh, keeps pathogenic fungi at bay, and as well as. Uh, uh, the pesticide and, and uh, insect repellent. You know, you talk about Africa, you should have a lot of neem uh, materials available in at least certain countries, not the whole continent, but um, there's a really good book called The Neem Tree. And I can't even begin to pronounce the last name, but it was a PhD at a Cologne University who went to, uh, there was a famine in 1958. So he went there, uh, he had just graduated with a PhD and he went there as part of an international assistance team, you know, to work with, with locusts, that's what it was. And um, he noticed when he got there and started studying that there was these trees that were unaffected by the locusts, the only plants that were and as it turned out, it was neem. So he began studying, spent 35 years, which put it, puts us at 1993. So he wrote a book of his studies in Asia and Africa with regard to the neem tree and its properties, you know, in, in those areas as it relates to agriculture specifically. So I know that there was a lot of research in Africa. It might be worth your while to get the book the uh, the title is easy enough, the neem tree. And then the, the last name is about 15 letters. It's a German name, you know, way too many consonants, you know, so. But you'll find it, you know, it would be about 48 bucks. Well worth your time though. Awesome, I'll have to check it out for sure. Um, so what, what, I guess, how did you, you fall on those particular uh, inputs? Was there, um, other inputs that you tried that maybe didn't work? Like what were some of the other organic inputs that you found maybe caused negative things or, or were, um, you know, uh, uh, just you, you tried them and then decided not to use them as part of your mix? Okay, well, to begin with is the uh, using sphagnum versus peat moss. Um, right there, because sphagnum has structure that gives you uh, air and uh, water pathways in, in the soil, which is really important in a in aerobic soil versus peat moss, which is the scraps, is ground down to a consistent size. 
because they can hydrate it. They, excuse me, they call it, um, well, they use what they call wetting agents. And a wetting agent is just a surfactant. If we spray it on a plant, we call it uh, a surfactant. If we put it in the soil, they call it a wetting agent. But you're still up against the fact that it, you know this from buying bagged soil, you usually have to add an amendment because you're working with peat moss, not sphagnum. Sphagnum is too expensive to put in a bag of soil that you're trying to sell retail for 10, 11, $12 or whatever at a nursery. So then the other thing was to use the, uh, the pumice versus perlite. The pumice is unadulterated. It's just strictly the uh, foam on a lava flow. And so that's it's uh, when it's black, it's called obsidian. And so it's it's completely inert, but it has the holes, which is important in nutrient uh, uh, sequestering. And if you can't get pumice, then you can use what is the popular name would be uh, lava rock, like they use in barbecues. Well, that's actually uh, scoria, which is similar but heavier than pumice. So there was the basic mix. And the key to the whole thing is the quality of the worm castings. Period. That's the whole crux of the success. And most of that was based on the research at Cornell in the 90s uh, with uh, Dr. Yasmin Cardoza and, and uh, um, I can't think of her name now. Um, anyway, so there was a lot of research there under the auspices of uh, Dr. Clive Davis at uh, uh, Oregon, uh, Oregon State University, considered 65 years studying is an entomologist, 65 years studying uh, worms in, in, in general, wor composting worms, which is a very small, there's about 3,600 varieties of worms around the world and less than 10 are considered composting worms. In Africa, you should be able to use African night crawlers because you have the, the temperatures they get huge. Those monster ones. Yeah. Yes. The they get huge. And you yep. look down on the ground, you think that's like a beetle or a mouse hole. Nope, that, that's where the worms came up in the rain. Yeah. And people don't people don't realize how uh, some of the insects there and some of the grasshoppers and flying grasshoppers in particular, uh, and then just armored ones that look like they came from a different planet. Uh, I just... <laughs> But uh, we were using, uh, we were making fermented, we were collecting large amounts of them, mixing them with insect frass, and then doing a, a, a similar to an IMO collection, mixing them with rice and doing an IMO collection, then making a spray from that um, mm -hmm. uh, to kind of, um, you know, uh, one, boost the chitinase on the plants, but also um, put out a microbe, uh, you know, microbes out there that, you know, don't really like those, uh, or really, really enjoy feeding on those grasshoppers. So it helped uh, reduce the Cambrian damage we were seeing significantly. So you might be interested in, in area study. Uh, not all, but some plant defense systems are referred to as pathways. 
and the uh, chitinase, and it's separated with a, uh, a hyphen. Chitinase salicylic acid pathway is one of the most important of the defense systems in a plant. And since you mentioned chitinase in applying it uh, as a foliar, you, you'd probably be really interested to see the dynamics of that whole uh, science. So, um, so I pass that on. No, correct me if I'm wrong. People try to get salicylic acid from horsetail, correct? Or at least that's people's theory. Absolutely. Yes. No, no. My question is, is that in horsetail specifically, isn't there also a compound that reduces the vitamin B availability? And I know at least does in 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 animals. Uh, I don't know if that also affects. I can't remember what the name of the compound is off the top of my head. But do you know if that would also be a, a an impact? We've we've tried to or at least personally, I've switched over towards stinging nettle, but uh, do you think that's enough to affect it? Or do you think that the benefits from that salicylic acid with, with the chitinase is more than makes up for it? Sure. But the other thing, um, the first plant that was domesticated by the human race uh, for use as a uh, medicinal plant is aloe vera, which originated in Africa, moved into uh still in Africa, obviously, but Egypt, and then eventually went to India. India has always been the center of plants from the days of the uh, spice root, and long before that, the days of the Silk Road, which ran through Northern India. So, and plants were a big component of that. It wasn't just silk and it wasn't just spices. So aloe vera spread all over the Mediterranean as a, a medicinal plant. So it seemed that in, Afri in Africa, that you would have a number of uh, specific cultivars. The, the good thing here is it doesn't matter which one you use. And there's other components in the aloe vera that are unique. It's one of the world's most uh, efficient uh, bionutrient accumulator on par with alfalfa or kelp. So uh, I think that probably would fit really well into your approach. And that's how it's, that plant produces more salicylic acid than any other on the planet per pound. Holy smokes. So that would give you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It must've just lagged a little bit. Oh no, I'm just saying that that would be from if chitinase, things like chitinase are important, as well as the salicylic acid to your program, then I'm just saying that the aloe vera is the path of least resistance. Uh, those leaves are, are, the gel is where it's contained. So those are like 99.4% water. So my point is that um, you don't have to worry about high dosing. You can use a lot of it. And it's really good for uh, propagation, uh, cloning, if you will. In fact, salicylic acid was the first uh, plant compound that was harnessed as a rooting agent right after World War I here at Oregon State University. Well, it wasn't called that then. It was Oregon Agricultural College or something. But that's where the research was done. They used to harvest it from uh, willow shoots. See, the, the acetyl form of salicylic acid is uh, aspirin. So Bayer had a, a vested interest in finding the new markets for this 
material and they contracted Oregon, what today was called Oregon State to do research on this. But that was the primary source of the, uh, of the, of the salicylic acid was the willow shoots, not a really efficient, uh, they weren't aware of the, the levels that were in aloe vera, probably would have been a little different story. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember when I was a little kid uh, with my grandparents, uh, my grandmother used to have us pick out the willow shoots and then we'd steep them. She'd we'd steep mm -hmm. them and we'd take it and when we'd, she'd take new cuttings off of the grapes from the newer growth and we'd use that to, to root them and then we'd stick that in yes, the ground yes. and then we'd build a whole fence on the whole three-sided, back three sides of the property. Um, but you're saying specifically that um, combining aloe vera or sorry, salicylic acid with chitinase, that combination has unique, uh, uniquely beneficial effects is what you're saying? All plants produce aloe vera, excuse me, salicylic acid. And most plants produce levels of chitinase. For example, When we use barley, malted barley, one of the enzymes that is present is chitinase. That was put there by the host plant to help the seedling defend itself against uh, primarily insects because chitinase deconstructs the insect eggshells, preventing the larva from maturing and then eventually harvest or hatching and causing you problems. But what we're doing, we're adding it to the cell. There's other properties in the aloe vera. It has like 400 different uh, constituents plus uh, basic elements, uh, 80, all 83 elements that plants need to uh, thrive, not just survive. And then the chitinase again, we is an adjunct from what the plant's producing and it's a good jolt I, was it uh yeah chitin is also like the walls of uh the internals on uh fungi so i mean chitin this will be you'll find this really interesting dr albert hoffman the man who discovered or isolated lsd he graduated at the age of 20 with a doctorate and a PhD from Cologne University for writing a paper on chitin. He broke, he discovered the molecular structure, not the formula, the formula, because chitin had been used uh, for sur surgical string going back to the 1880s, uh, both, and then later both internal as well as external surgery, more often than not the, uh, the string that they were using was made from chitin. So I just found that fascinating. I mean, because it's a very complex subject. At the age of 20, he has a PhD and he goes to work for uh, Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland upon graduation and the rest, as they say, is history. But uh, uh, so I, chitin I, had been in, it still ask, remains. I gotta ask you, how do you make surgical string out of chitin? Well, it's a poly 
saccharides, a form of uh, glucosamine. So it's extremely hard. And what happens is that only the only organisms that can deconstruct polysaccharides, cellulose, fiber, whatever term you want to use, is fungi. Bacteria in a weak attempt create an enzyme called chitinase. So when we add it to our soils, it isn't so much the chitin per se is giving us the benefit. It's the enzyme chitinase that's created by microbial colonies to deconstruct that material. Now, some and plants themselves produce chitinase. This is like, think of it as a steroid shot. Um, a vaccine, I know that's not, that's not, I better not use that word. But anyway, you get the idea, so. If you've never used aloe vera, just try it sometime. Oh yeah. Sick plant. I've definitely used uh, powdered aloe vera and teas before, and I've used it for other methods, but I never, I didn't realize that it had that level of uh, salicylic acid in it. So that, that's, that's crazy. That's one thing, if you were to look at labels of over-the-counter products for skin, you know, acne, things like that, or rashes, whatever. And then if you've looked at the uh, pres prescription versions of those type of products, what you'd find is that salicylic acid is in almost every one um, for a number of reasons. So, and actually, it, say you have a headache, instead of taking aspirin, you could drink some aloe vera juice or some of the gel, just you know, scoop out some of the gel in the middle of the, of the leaf. You don't want to eat the skin, not that it's poisonous, but it has a lot of fiber and it'll give you what the British call the winds. So uh, you're probably better off just to cut it open and scoop out the, the gel and add that like to a smoothie or something like that. Or you can just, you know, eat it. It's not, it's not unpleasant at all. I buy them from the Mexican market. Uh, in Mexico, it's not uncommon to have a uh, aloe vera plant in the kitchen for burns and cuts and things. Because um, it's really, if you get it on there fast enough, it'll keep your skin from swelling from a burn or it'll disinfect your cut. So you'll, uh, you won't be in, you know, have an infection going, things like that. It's a pretty remarkable plant. The history on it uh, is, is uh, a long one. Like I said, it started in Central Africa and then worked its way through Egypt and on to India. And the Greeks got a hold of it and you know, the rest is history. Awesome. Um, so uh, is there any... Um... Uh, things that you're experimenting with as far as, um, you know, anything that you think you're, you, maybe you need to add to the, the mix itself uh, beyond what you're doing? I know that was one of the questions in chat was, uh, let me make sure I go back and, and get it right, is, uh, is Kud experimenting with any amendments besides neem, uh, karanja, kelp, and barley? No. Okay. No. I, uh... Okay, here's one as an example. 
going back to the early days of uh, we're talking like almost 40 years George Avanti's first book I don't remember the name but whatever when it's been republished what 19 times or something the uh, um, Bible or whichever version. I don't know. I forget if it's him or Ed that has the Bible and then the other one has the grow guide or whatever. Yeah, that one. When it was he was still George Cervantes before he became Jorge. But before that he was George Van Patten. But anyway, uh yeah, he's from Portland here. Or that's where he got his start. He's actually from Eastern Oregon. But anyway, he started this thing about blood mail. Okay. So let me give you an example which is factory waste, you know, from the slaughtering. The part that couldn't get made into sausages gets made into blood mill. And let's say you said, okay, I'm gonna use blood mill, but I'm gonna do organic. Okay, well, that's good. It's gonna run you about $75 for 50 pounds. So $1.50 a pound, okay. I can buy some of the best alfalfa grown in the world grown over in Eastern Oregon because of the volcanic soils. It's old timers used to refer to alfalfa as a field kelp. That's how good it is. It's an bionutrient accumulator. It produces certain auxins and plant hormones that only that plant can produce. And I can get the best of the best of the best for $15 a bag. That's 30 cents a pound. So the, uh, Blood mill would cost me five times as much. And if you're a farmer, you can't make bad decisions with bad science. Why would you do that? Think of all the things that you're going to get in the alfalfa that you won't get in the blood meal. The growth hormones. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but you know, you know, you know yourself what alfalfa can uh, provide. So there's so many things in the cannabis scene that got started on. So just, I mean, in the first book, George Cervantes was talking about baking your soil in an oven to kill the germs. I mean, you know, come on. Uh, yeah, the one, the, I think the biggest thing that I. Uh, uh, that has been updated since the the early days is the the dipping in peroxide to get rid of PM. That's another uh, another good one. Yeah, or burning sulfur. Remember, I remember a time in Portland because we, we had the first of the first of the grow stores. All right, in the early '80s, <clears throat> and one of the things you had to provide when you were a grow store is. Uh, the uh, offer the service of renting out sulfur burners. Okay, and then you'd buy this little tub of sulfur, elemental sulfur, which is really, really cheap. My God, I mean, I can get 50 pounds of it for like $10. Agricultural grade, same thing. So here's the thing though, we burn sulfur when we buy sulfur, it's sulfur oxide. Okay, the actual uh, uh, molecular formula is uh, S, and then O oxygen four. So there's four ions of oxygen to one 
on one uh, sulfur. But when you burn it, now you turned it into, you'll love this, sulfur dioxide. You know, the acid rain stuff. And <clears throat> this area of the country is really bad for powdery mildew for the myth is that it's because of the rain that has little or nothing to do with it. Around the world, there's 3,900 varieties of powdery mildew. In Oregon and Washington, west of the Cascades, between the Cascades and the Pacific Ocean, there's almost 400. So we have about 10% of the world's total. And one of the biggest businesses on the West Coast is horticulture, wholesale. And when you're selling plants to nurseries, one of the things you have to do is provide your customers with new plants every year. And those plants came from somewhere, right? Asia, Africa, South America, Oklahoma. And all I'm saying is that we've been collecting strains of powdery mildew for 140 years. And burning sulfur, while it's a feel-good thing, it goes against the science of why don't you do the soil right and give the plants some defense against these invaders. Like, otherwise, we'd be all living in a desert. The plants didn't have the ability to defend itself. You know, it's like when I walk through the forest, who's out there checking the pH? You know, I mean, I don't know. So I just think in the interest of making money that the cannabis trade has uh, sold its soul and just presenting bullshit products at insane prices. And uh, I know how to read a label, you know. I know what sulfate of potash is. I know what it costs. It doesn't cost $70 a gallon when it's at 10% and the rest is water, excuse me, inert ingredients. There's your tip off uh, through an act of Congress, literally the fertilizer industry was given the uh, right to use inert ingredient instead of water on the label. Sounds more exotic, but that's what it is. It's just, uh, so when something's 99, 0.2% water, excuse me, inert ingredients, you think it's going to do something? Wow. Get a worm bin, you know, that's my degree, uh, get a worm bin, do it right, call the day. The rest yeah. is hocus pocus, man. I just wonder if I went to Oklahoma and say I had, for sake of discussion, say a hundred grand. And I set up a legitimate permacompost operations under, uh, what do you call them? Uh, pole barns with some uh, large space heaters for the winters. And let's say that I wanted to, like in that movie, The Godfather, we're all capitalists here. So uh, say $400 a yard, and that's gonna be a dollar fifty 
I'd have to do the arithmetic, but anyway, that's 27 bags for $400. So that's what a dollar 50 a bag. I mean, come on, what's the deal? No, $15 a bag, excuse me, $15. But anyway, you get the idea. Or a two yard totes, there you go. Do them in totes. Because bagging, you know, what happens is bagging. Here's why you know you're getting screwed at any nursery. And I don't care if it's cannabis or mainstream. The cost per bag. And you have to provide the bag. You, the vendor, wh whoever's arranging for this deal, right, at the packing houses. That adds $4 to the cost right there. Boom. And you're going to retail it for $10 and you're talking about quality? Come on. I mean, do the arithmetic. See, the money is in the amendments. Fox Farm didn't make money off Ocean Forest and Happy Frog and that other silliness, uh, Plant Warrior or Light Warrior, whatever it was. It was Perlite with uh, some beet dust on it. But anyway, and they made their money off the Tiger Bloom, off the Cha-Ching and the, you know, uh, the cool labels, you know. Uh, there you go, man. It's all about style over substance. I think uh, I think Chris has got a question here for you. Wagamas, I haven't met you before. Good to meet you. Thank you. Good meeting you. Yeah, it's very cool to hear you talk. Um, so we got this problem, and I'm, I'm going to get political, but the the people that write our policy in, in regards to these biologicals um, are like people that have never been on a farm or, or something. I mean, right. I don't know how, how it works. Do you, do you see a, a path forward for having uh, like, like real or, or laws that make sense for, for using biologicals or for a, a farmer to produce uh, their materials and, and have it be condoned or safe? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> the first, um, this will blow your mind. The United States did not have a organic program until uh, George Bush uh, took office in 2001 and he had nothing to do with it. It was passed during the waning months of the Clinton administration. And uh, they, I forget the term they use, but it'll go into effect after we leave kind of thing, you know, office. And what was interesting, and so that's the USDA NOP, the National Organic Program. Uh, you'll see that on labels. And those laws were based on California and Oregon's state organic uh, entities. In Oregon, it's Oregon Tilt, which dates back to about 1975. So we had, uh, for 25 years, we had an organic certification program here in Oregon before there was a national program. And the other one was the CCOF, which is, was the uh, California Certified Organic Farmer Program. 
And at one time, those two organizations were part of it. It doesn't matter. But anyway, um, so when the national government was going to implement a organic program, they took the laws of Oregon and California for the most part, and that became the national program. Politics entered into it. So here is the rule. You can take a rule by the federal government, and here's the classic one, because this one cracks me up. Under the, the uh, NLP, you're allowed to use uh, baking soda or uh, sodium bicarbonate for anything you want. You can use it as a spray, as a fungicide, or you can do it in your soil to adjust pH or whatever, however you want to use it, okay? Now in Oregon, under Oregon rules, they're more restrictive. They say you can't add it to your soil. You can use it as a foliar, as a fungicide, is what it does. It changes the pH, which then will give you, uh, it'll kill the fungi long enough to then do something else. It'll arrest it. How's that? It's not a cure. It's, uh, it's an arresting agent, is how I would describe it. Yeah, so then I said, huh? it sticks around, so it doesn't go anywhere. Right. So then I asked at a meeting, so what are we supposed to do? Put out terry cloth towels underneath the plants when we spray it so it doesn't hit the soil? I mean, it's just preposterous, you know. Uh, so here's the rule. You can, whatever the federal government has in their regulations, you can make them more strict but you can't lessen them. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can make them more difficult. You can't make that material easier to use. <clears throat> now, Oregon, the Oregon TELF program, it takes five years to be certified. Five years to go from conventional through transitional to final uh, certified organic. But it isn't limited, it is not limited to Oregon. There are about 30 states that have me too's. In other words, whatever Oregon says, that's what our law will change. Yeah. So each state is allowed to set up their own deal. And that, as you can imagine, has invited a myriad of problems. And so when you look at certification on something, kind of like really, really, OMRI means nothing. OMRI means nothing. It's a listing service. Their entire listing service is based on Oregon and California's laws. They can't certify anything. If you go read their mission statement, it states in the first two sentences, we are not a certification agency. That OMRI label is strictly, you know, you pay for that to use that on your product. Yep. That's how they make their money. Seriously. So the person walks in and goes, well, it's Omri listed. And then I used to tell him, well, go ahead and use it anyway. I mean, uh, it means absolutely nothing. Right. So um, the main thing is, I look, there are people, at least in my state, every year we hit the highest percentage per capita, the number of new farms 
that are registering as organic. Our percentage of organic versus uh, transitional and conventional is the highest in the country. Other states to look to is Vermont. They have a, a Maine, the uh, MAFCA, Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Um, I'm afraid at the national level, it's really, really sad. Um, because politics entered into it. So something's got approved under USDA NOP. Okay, here's one for you. There's kelp meal and then there's seaweed extract. And seaweed extract would be like uh, maxi crop. Or anytime you see those types of products, you notice they're always black. Well, that's because of how they're made. So they take the pieces of kelp and they dry them after they remove the, the money makers, algenic acid, the iodine, and there's some others. So you're basically left with the scraps. And then they hit it and buy a lot. This is under NLP rules. They can only use one of two agents, sodium hydroxide or potassium hydroxide, stuff that's in Drano to clean your uh, pipes. Caustic and so it burns it and that's why it's black. So the, it burns up all the compounds, all the constituents. And so what are you left with? Well, you're left with black powder because you can't destroy an element, right? And so that's why you always see seaweed extracts are always black because they're made with the stuff that you might be using in your kitchen to clean out the uh, whatever, but anyway. Thank you. That's So there's no, there's no hope on a national level is what you're telling me. It's gonna be, you know, several administrations that reconstruct what we, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, but you know, I do see hope in many, many states, states that uh, in the past had no program that are, you know, there's beachheads. It's, uh, it's about, what do they say in 12 steps? Yeah, it's about progress, not perfection. Yeah. And, um, you know, the lure of uh, ammonium hydroxide and phosphoric acid, they're cheap. You start, you know, uh, so they're all, they, they have their lure, but they only need to look at states where the main crop industry has collapsed. Good one would be Florida and oranges. I was down there three years ago looking at Karanja groves and the amount of destruction from orange groves just pulled up because of the skin disease, the uh, bacterium disease gone. I mean, this was a, a multi-billion dollar a year industry. Next time you're in a grocery store, look at the orange juice. I bet you it's from Brazil. Wow. So, Florida, Florida orange juice is just a song, you know, from the 80s. But, you know, it's just collapsed. It is, you know, you can't, a hundred years and of some really goofy practices and you're left with uh, desolation. I think Oregon benefited from a low uh, population. I mean, we never had more than, I think I moved up here in late 88 and it was uh, you know, right around two and three quarter million. So. Have you looked at all at uh, Thailand? And then their legalization. 
Oh, well, hear me. I haven't, but I will say this. It's the finest cannabis in the world that I've ever had in 53 years. We're from Thailand, so I say good. Keep the American breeders out of there. Mm. I think uh, the seed. I saw Mexico is legalizing soon. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of U.S. growers headed down there. <laughs> well, you know, it's really sad is that um, when we look at all the famous strains, as the people say back in the day, every one of them was a sativa, every one. Um, let's see, Panama Red, Colombian, Oaxacan, Mexico, all the stuff from the Caribbean, Thai, Thai sticks, the stuff from Sri Lanka, it was called Ceylon then. Um, well, there's American breeders in the early 80s or late 70s. They started adding it, uh, the, the, the indica strains uh, to the mix, mainly for uh, canopy control, the height thing. You know, it's pretty challenging to grow land race sativas indoors, to say the least. So um, I think it, you know, there's a culture there in those countries that could predates goes back in you know Thailand. I know. I have a book called, uh, excuse me, that's not the, the title, but it's about uh, the Buddhist monks in Asia and their connection with the, uh, this is one man's opinion, so I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but talking about uh, the Buddhist monks in uh, Thailand and uh, the history of cannabis and, and uh, even mushrooms, so. I think it'd be good to get people involved in it in cultures that had a long history before it was ravaged by American interest or European interest. Anyway, that's my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, that was one of the nice things when I went to Zimbabwe is Zimbabwe has been pretty, um, uh, since the late 70s hasn't been very stable. So there hasn't been a lot of uh, other growers coming through there. And there hasn't been a lot of export internationally um, just because of, you know, it was hard to move anything out of the country, right? So uh, with the exception of, of the border areas, there wasn't a lot of stuff. So there's actually a lot of uh, more interesting sativas, uh, you know, that haven't really been screwed with or contaminated as much. You know, yeah. I think Africa is one of the last places left where there is still a little bit of land races that left that haven't been screwed with. At least yeah, what I've yeah. seen. The best uh, friend went to uh, Africa. He was dealt in uh, cloth, unique to you know to a group, a tribe, a village, if you will. And he would buy the cloth from the women. And he would get cannabis from the guys. And this was like around, I don't know, 82, 83, I guess. 
about four years ago. And um, I just remember that this was some of the finest cannabis I ever smoked. And such a variety because it was from several locations and I couldn't tell you, but Malawi I know was one and but uh, and Nigeria, because Nigeria has been a major cannabis port for centuries, still is. A lot of the uh, flowers that end up in Europe come out of uh, yeah, the out of Nigeria. Nigeria is the second highest consumer by volume uh, in the world after the United States. Uh, of is cannabis. that right? A lot of people don't know that, but they love their weed there. Well, I I don't know. I, I take the view. Uh, I kind of like as far as that goes, not in other ways. Um, but I like to see things go back about 60 years and let Mexico grow Mexican. Let Thailand grow Thai sticks. Let, you know, Nepal do temple balls, you know, hash. I don't know. I, I'm not as enamored with what the American scene has done as some people might be. You know, I mean, do we really need another Kush? Another one? Like, well, can you imagine trying, like, can you imagine how many people in the US would just be blown away by Charas? Like, I get that rosin oh, is yeah. a pretty similar thing, but. You know, yeah. having, you know, charas and, and rosin are, are a little bit different tasting, you know. <laughs> um, What's the one uh, I had it once out in Malawi, uh, Cobb, I think they called it. They rolled it up and buried uh, so it. In, it got malt. Yeah, so I was going to go up when I was over there. We were planning to go up into Malawi, but uh, there is some... Um, um, religious uh, motivated um, killings uh, right before we were about to go up there. So we decided that uh, maybe it wasn't the best time to go there. So we, uh, we didn't end up going. Yeah. But. Well, you know, my generation screwed that up for you guys because my generation went to countries all around the world and just pissed everybody off. Yeah, so uh, yeah, go to, go to Morocco and piss off the Islam. Go to India, piss off the Hindu. That's that's smart right there. Piss off the Hindus. Um, why, why not just go to Salt Lake City and piss off the Mormons? I mean, you know, come on. Um, and you know, we just acted like assholes in places like Mexico, and you know, so it made it hard for people that didn't act like assholes like you could go and try to be nice and they just remember from there talking to their mom and granddad about those goddamn Americans and Europeans. Talk to the Indians in Goa when you know that hit. So we weren't good, we weren't good world citizens. How's that? We could have been better. How's that? So we had a, a question a little bit earlier from uh, C. Baker asked, people say that peat moss is sterile. What about the peat moss uh, harvested frozen? Um, yeah. Okay, well, what he's talking about is, um, if you look at a diagram of the plant, the top is the sphagnum. And that is cut when it's frozen. Those are the ones that come in the 3.8 cubic foot 
compressed uh, bales that bust out to about six cubic feet. And what you want to do is look on the label. Somewhere there'll be a, a logo from the Canadian CSPMA, the Canadian Sphagnum Peat Moss Association. There's only about eight or nine companies that are authorized to cut peat moss in Canada. One company is bigger than all the other ones combined. It does 52% of the entire total. That's uh, SunGrow Horticulture. You would know some of their products as Sunshine Mixes. They come in different Sunshine Mix number four, Sunshine Mix number two. That has to do with the percentage of uh, aeration amendment, what type. Some, some are maybe vermiculite, some are, you know, perlite or whatever. But the bales of sphagnum, the ones I'm talking about, it doesn't matter the name of on the label. It does. It is just by price, as long as it's Canadian sphagnum, and uh, they cut that frozen, and so it's wrapped right there. It's not processed at all. Now what? That gentleman's talking about is the peat moss that goes into potting soils, which is like the vast majority. They take that and they heat it in Canada in what's called a layer, LEHR, to a temperature that uh, gets rid of all the water. Well, it also kills, so it sterilizes it. So then it's hauled down to the mixing plants in the States. And that's where it's mixed with other materials. Depends on the recipe and who's buying it. Like, for example, uh, Miracle Grow, they don't own a mixing plant. They just contract it with the big players. And um, so that soil is sterilized. But, and that sounds good, I guess. But sterilization is kind of like when we get injected with the antibiotic, it kills everything, right? It's like when you get done with your treatment, you start eating foods that probiotic foods and what have you to rebuild the floor in your gut. So in the same vein, when these potting soils and they're all the same, it doesn't, the name on the label doesn't really matter. I mean, there's isn't a dime's worth of difference. Um, it's sterilized soil. So you can imagine what the challenge is unless you're using really good humus source, like I mean, legitimately made thermophilic compost that was cured for eight or nine months in the mesophilic stage, or you're using really good worm castings, you know, that kind of level. But if you think you're going to go to Walmart and get a bag of steer manure and call it compost and mix it with, and just pick a name, it doesn't matter. You know, um, yeah, you're going to have problems. So, um, that's why I'm a big, first of all, it's less money to mix your own. Um, that's the main thing. The other thing is you control the ingredients. So, uh, you know, it just depends how much energy you want to put into the project, I guess. For me growing, because uh, I'm a cannabis enthusiast, we say, um, and have been for many decades. I just think it's worth it to go out the extra effort and get the best ingredients. 
having nothing to do with the label on the bag. Or, Can I just know, uh, follow up with that, Quackman? If so, would you say that you care more about what the ingredients are than what their their printout label, their uh, you know percent calcium, all that stuff in there is? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That that's a that's a hard concept for people. Can you? Oh, I know. I mean, the nutrients that aren't listed on there. Uh, you know, that's the deal break. That's the difference maker. Uh, can you speak to that? Can you help people wrap their heads around that? Sure. Um, it kind of depends what the hot button is. You know, like it goes in cycles, you know, for years it was phosphorus and I guess now it's calcium. Uh, the other thing to remember about labels, it's really important for manufacturers or companies that are having soil because none of them, I don't care what they tell you, think about what it costs to invest in a soil mixing company. The big companies that they can mix an entire truckload and it takes eight minutes. The truckload, that's a lot of soil. And then you got to bag it. So then it goes over to the materials moved over to where they bag it. And it, look, it's just the margins are nothing. If a lot of stores, if they were allowed to, they would just give you the bags, the soil, because they're going to make their money off the fungicide, the pesticide, the herbicide. That's where the money is. And how many times are customers told, like at a Home Depot, well, if you're going to use miracle Grow soil, you're going to want to use the miracle Grow nutrients because it's formulated to work with the soil. I mean, crap like that, right? Um, I think it's important just to learn just some basics about soil. But anyway, to answer your questions directly, so that's why I recommend kelp meal. It's because kelp meal is a plant. It accumulates all 83 elements necessary for a plant. But the important thing is because it is a plant itself that when it accumulates those nutrients, they're collated so that we add it to our soil the bioavailability of those nutrients to the plant's roots is remarkably fast. But it's also, remember plants call up nutrients on an as-need basis. So this myth that, well, if we just, I know it needs more magnesium because this guy online said it did. So let me dump as much magnesium as I can, whether that be, but I guess, uh, Epsom salts or something like really horrible like uh, K-Max or uh, Langbionite, it's all the same thing. But, but remember about labels, or, this is really important to understand. That the more labels that you, or excuse me, the more names you can get on that label is the more that you can sell a myth that you know something that the customer doesn't. I'll give you one example. There's one material that you can buy it legally under four different names. The, the, the chemist name, which would be uh, sulfate of potash magnesia. One commercial name is called K-Max. The other name is sol for sulfur, po for potassium, uh, mag, magnesium. And then the other one is the man who invented it. That was the custom in the late 19th century. If you discovered it, they added ite to it. 
and you that's what it was named. So Dr. Langbian in Germany discovered a deposit. So it was called Langbianite. Anyway, all I'm trying to explain is that all four of those names apply to the exact same material and oftentimes from the exact same mine. Okay, but you can put all four on your label. So when the customer looks at it, gosh, these people really know what they're doing. Or here's my favorite, another one is a calcium carbonate. So that's limestone. Limestone is accumulated seashells over millions of years. So all seashells in the world are made from calcium carbonate. Okay, fair enough. So I'll look at a bag of soil label and have limestone. All right, that makes sense. But then they'll list it calcium carbonate. Well, that's what limestone is. It's calcium carbonate. I get it. Uh, then they'll list, uh, oh, I don't know, oyster shell powder. You know, another form of calcium. Look, calcium carbonate is calcium carbonate. You know, but by having that ability to do that, you can list it three times on your label so that you end up with a huge label. So it looks like, wow, this is really something special. And so that's what I've tried to do is to help people read labels or to understand what they're reading and um, to make better decisions, you know, because we're living in times where money's tight. Yeah. And I, I, uh, hopefully, you know. I think you made a really good point too in, in the availability of some of these plants. You said, this is an actual plant. You said, kelp meal you like. And it's a, it's, the availability, what that, what that, those root systems or that plant you're applying it to can do with that compared to, to some of the things we're, we're talking about, even organic or OMRI things, um, those minor nutrients that you're speaking of, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the difference in flavors. Well, here's and the other advantage because it is a plant, it accumulated those nutrients in the right balance. Not because of what a fertilizer sells and thinks it should be. So that the boron, which is necessary for a plant uh, to be able to accumulate calcium, that's true. But it needs this amount, not that amount. Yeah. You don't need to buy a bottle of boron or, you know, some kind of supplement. And so, um, I think it does a disservice to the public at large, I mean, I think it'd be kind of nice if uh, those of us who know or if, if we could help more people to learn this is not difficult and you don't need to get confused by jibber jabber. Um, you know, terminology that I just, sometimes I crack up. I'm just, uh, where'd you come up with that? You know, uh, Steve, you go to one you of were these. Talk uh, huh? oh, Steve was talking about boron accumulation and um, through, through fungal interactions, right, Steve? That's like a, oh, it's a very uh, plant yeah. specific or, or balanced um, way to receive boron. Uh, boron and then uh, what are the the boron we're seeing a lot of uh, excess accumulation in some of the super heavy fungal uh, dominant soils that we're we're growing in, in the dual roots and stuff yeah for sure 
we're definitely seeing higher than expected boron levels. I guess I'll put it that way. Without even adding boron. Yeah, and and, mm -hmm. and a lot of it's just the plants pulling it out of the water and and you know accumulating it with those microbes up into that root zone with the, and exchanging it with the fungi and everything else. At least that's the theory, anyway. I don't have a way to prove that, <laughs> at least not currently. <laughs> Working on that though. Hopefully later this year we'll have some. Oh, here's one for you. Plants. I didn't. Um, I reviewed some paperwork I had about 20 years ago. The uh, group in uh, Montreal, and they were doing hydroponics on rooftops, and for their, we it's called nutrient solution, whatever. You get this. They were using a combination of uh, worm castings and kelp meal, uh, and in big socks or mesh bag, you know, so it didn't clog up the system. But you think about it, worms are at the core of the entire universe. The only land that doesn't have worms is deserts. But look at all the areas that have lush growth and you'll find, oh, you mentioned the worms in Zimbabwe, you know, 18 inches long. And if in the Northwest, you go into the forest and pull up a spade full of dirt. As a matter of fact, a way of, of measuring viability of land, uh, if you're considering buying a farm, is you dig up a cubic foot of soil and you spread it out on a tarp and count the number of worms. So uh, it's been said that if worms disappeared from the universe, that the human race would have less than 10 days to survive. It's that important. And it's only been in the last decade or so that the destruction caused by uh, using ammonium nitrates and the phosphoric acid and Epsom salts. I mean, we're just about one, you know, cow mag lockout from complete disaster. So, uh, yeah, it's time to take a breather and evaluate the soils and begin programs of remediation. And that's not going to be, you know, representatives from Monsanto or Bayer or the rest of them. It's going to, it's going to be, a, has to be a grassroots thing, I'm afraid. I was, uh, I was going to, there was another question in chat, which I think would be super cool. And I think a lot of people are interested. Um, uh, Chris, do you want to touch a little bit on how, um, uh, you know, his malted barley method works uh, really, really well and really similar to like an IMO inoculation. It causes a huge amount of uh, increase in, uh, in mycorrhizae and, and, and well, in fungi, fungal growth in the, in the soil. Um, or if you aren't familiar, maybe uh uh, Clackamas, maybe you could give him a quick rundown of the malted barley uh, method, and then and Chris can kind of uh, maybe uh, chime in on that. Somebody actually asked that in chat. If uh, if uh, you could well, go ahead, talk Chris, about that. tell me your experience. So Clackamas, we make a um, a um, indigenous like a compost concentrate. We'll take um, mm -hmm. we'll collect inoculum from wild wild places, places that have been undisturbed and uh, we'll get it to grow out on uh, like an auger of rice. And, um, mm -hmm. and then we will use that material. We mix it with equal weight brown sugar 
um, which causes the fungi to sporulate because they you're basically taking them to a desertified environment. And so everything just sporulates or cysts. And then we're able to use that or dole that out as we need to make a bigger amount. And what we do is we use rice bran and uh, we use mm-hmm. crimped oats and uh, things with high high fat um, protein profiles um, for, for fungal growth. And uh, we get um, grow out that fungi and then we mingle in some soil uh, live, you know, fresh, real soil, not like potting soil. And, right. um, and we introduce the, you know, microarthropods and nematodes and all that to the bacteria, fungi, and yeast that we just grew out on that media and, um, mingle those with some moisture. And that's our inoculum for the farm. Um, but I, I hear you have a, uh, a way of using barley, um, for, for increased microbial life. And I'd love to hear about it. Well, it came from, uh, first of all, let me, uh, definitions are important. The term malting simply means germinated. Yeah, yeah. Actually sprouted because they don't even let the taproot develop. And they then stop it, goes it in into like a, a stage of sprouting, right? That it sprouts to a certain yes. point and then they kind of. Correct. It, 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 it's done at 118 which arrests the germination, but doesn't destroy the enzymes. And the main reason that barley, well, first of all, it's traditional. Barley is unique among grass seeds in that only barley creates two forms of amylase, alpha and beta. All seeds, grass seeds, wheat, rye, even corn, all have amylase, alpha amylase. And I used to use it in uh, in artisan baking. You add, and there it's referred to as diastatic malt, and which means that the enzymes are still alive. Non-diastatic malt would be things like barley syrup, where it's been cooked. The enzymes are destroyed, right? Because they're simple, right? Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen compounds. Okay, so back to, and, and yeast is a single cell fungi. So malt is added to the dough, which increases fungal development, which means you get poopier bread. Uh, the French developed this. And baking, and because it's the same species of yeast between baking and brewing, Bakeries and, and, and breweries have always had a symbiotic relationship in Europe's history. The two were that connected. That's where you got your yeast from, was from the brewery. Or, yeah. So I'm reading this uh, paper several years ago. It has a list of other enzymes in there. And it's got urease for urea. It's got uh, protease for protein. And what cannabis grower doesn't obsess about phosphorus, it's got phosphatase. So I went, okay, you got a winner here. But then the one, it, it just struck me, I couldn't This is it. in the malted barley? Yes. And here is the one that really, I said, uh, I'm onto something. Titanase. So these are enzymes that are encoded by the host plant into the seed to help it develop before it creates it. After, because it hit, 
it can't eat anything, the taproot isn't developed. So it's not gonna be able to take, I don't care how good a soil you got, the plant can't, the seedling can't use it until it begins to develop a network. So you have, excuse me, so everything has to be contained in that seed to survive. And it is kind of interesting how, God, I hate using these terms, Mother Nature worked things out, you know, it's all there. It doesn't need the guiding hand of Indoor Garden Depot a play of the month to tell me I need to add whatever. So the first time I did it. And what did you do? Oh, I didn't know that you could buy this stuff. So I went to Bob's Red Mill and bought uh, raw barley and I malted it. And uh, the first morning after, because I did it at night before lights went out. So when I went in the next morning, the lights were on the room. All the leaves were pointing up to the light like praying hands. And I just said to myself, I don't know what's going on, but I wanted something here. And so you the main took the malted barley, you took the malted barley and put it on as, it a top, as a top dressing. Yes, I ground dried, it up like a flour. Dried malted yeah. barley. Okay. Yeah. Because I have a, a grain mill. I, I grind my own uh, grains for making bread. So cool. I, it was easy deal to grind up the, the malt. And then later, a friend of a friend said to me, why don't you just go buy it? I said, they had this stuff already made. He goes, you had a brew store, dickhead. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I went there and the guy says, you're going to do what with it? I said, I'm going to use it as a fertilizer. And he's looking at me like, have you been drinking this morning? You know, kind of thing. Anyway, so that was how I got on to, because this, this uh, uh, home brew store is the first one in the United States right here in Portland. Is that cool? 1918 or 1917, whatever it was, World War I era. And um, so you go in there and they have all these bins of malted grains that you buy in bulk. You know, rye, red wheat, white wheat, spelt wheat. You get the idea, you know, four or five kinds of barley. So I just had fun in there. I'd buy like, you know, like a cup. And that's where all the home, the weekend brewers uh, come. Um, you know, come to get their materials. So it's real relaxed and they're all talking shop and stuff. You're, like, You're gonna do what with it? Yeah, I'm gonna grind it up and put it in the soil. Just nuts, guys, nuts. Anyway. So, Steve, maybe yeah. to answer answer that question, I, I think that um, the, the the fertilizing effect and the, the, the life that's already in his soil is given basically a, a nitrous shot, you know, it's, it's all yes, this, yes. as he just explained, it's, it's all this incredible nutrients and in, in, in a form that's highly available and ready to be piped into those root zones sure. and, or made available. Right. So and a little different. Bin, in a worm bin, it's really critical because the entire thing in a worm bin is driven by enzymes. The uh, composting worms, when they all, the only thing they eat, nothing else, they don't eat, they don't have teeth, they don't have a stomach. They suck up bacteria slime, which is their manure. Mm -hmm. 
and in the digestive tract of the worm, enzymes convert it to what, into what we call castings instead of more manure, I guess. In it, yeah, but anyway, you get the idea. So if you had a regular worms in there that weren't composting worms, their castings wouldn't be what you're going to get from well, red wigglers or your euros or the, especially the blues from Hawaii, uh, excuse me, uh, India. Uh, they mistakenly are called Malaysians, but they're actually from the Kashmir Valley. But, but beyond that, in the, in the bedding, the material, the, the compost, the manure, whatever we're using, worms exude enzymes to trigger specific microbial reactions. And so the enzymes that are contained in the barley are an adjunct to this and accelerates it. So the reproduction is faster cycle. That's a good thing. And more food is made available in any organism. If you give it more food, they do what? They produce Multiply. more offspring. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you, this is one of those rhetorical things because we'll never have perfection, but a pound of worms today, it'd be a thousand pounds a year from today. Just think about each worm produces two cocoons a week. They're, they're uh, what's the word? They're hermorphodites, but they have to line up and they uh, exchange body fluids and each slithers away and deposits a cocoon. They do that twice a week. That cocoon will hatch out about four hatchlings uh, when it matures. And within 42 days, those are sexually mature. And they're going to live for five years and do 24-7 doing nothing but processing bacteria and manure. So the more uh, assistance we can provide, and, and, and barley certainly does that, will increase food supply, that increase worm production, which means that you're going to have uh, a better a worm bin that's just going to hum along. Is, is there any particular foods that people can, can utilize or, or uh, inputs that people can utilize to try and feed the native uh, ne uh, nematodes and worms over the non-natives? I know I've been asked that question two or three times. Sure. Um, well, if you live in a country, uh, here's why I use neem. Neem is very good at, at uh, suppressing pathogenic fungi colonies. But it, it also, at the same time, elevates the aerobic colonies. And it does the same thing with nematodes. One of the best defenses, and, and the science out there is, is overwhelming. One of the best defenses against pathogenic nematodes is neem or karanja, even though the two are unrelated. The karanja is interesting because it is a, a lagoon. So think of... Uh, alfalfa and steroids. So you're getting pesticide and fungicide properties along with incredible growth, like any legume. That part doesn't matter. But uh, those are incredible uh, to add to your soil as a defense against pathogenic nematodes. And the science on that is, is undisputable. Uh, you can find that without buying the book for $48 or whatever it is. Uh, we had uh, a couple other questions here. Was, uh, are you using two-row or six-row malted barley? Okay. Um, here's the 
okay, so when okay, let me explain six rows. Six row is a different species. And it is true that it has elevated levels of alpha amylase. And that's really important in brewing beer. For our purposes as uh, gardeners and farmers, it it's it's like oh yeah really that's interesting. I mean it's it doesn't mean anything. And the other thing is only the only United States is the only uh, or North America is more accurately is the only area of the world that produces six row. So you're gonna all I'm what I'm trying to say is you're gonna pay a lot for it. And it's not necessary. If you get two row the organic stuff even from Great Western Malt, they've been around since 1938. They got this down. And it's under a dollar a pound, can you imagine? I mean, that'll last any gardener at least two years. And if you store it in paint buckets with the lid on, uh, you can get three or four years uh, viability out of it. So you save money is what I'm saying. Everybody's hey, going to have... You're saying that two row has the beta amylase? Yes. Well, they both do. It's just that the uh, six row has elevated alpha. And alpha is important in brewing. Okay, here's how it's used. When we take barley and roast it for regions of uh, flavor and coloring, like say you're going to do an Irish ale or something, you know, a dark beer. Well, you've destroyed the enzymes. So when you look at a recipe for beer, it's not uncommon to have two or three different malts. And when you add those that are uh, enzyme dead, they got good flavor because of the uh, caramelization in the roasting process. They'll add six row because it has this big spike of alpha amylase that'll get the brewing process going. Does that make sense? Yeah, but yeah. we don't care about that in the garden. Right, That's exactly. The the, yeah, there's no reason to spend more money than is necessary. Just the, the regular two row. And here's another thing, it's not, I know it's gonna sound weird for me to say this, but this is one area where you don't have to have organic. Here's why. Very few food items in the world are as tightly controlled as malt because that beer better taste the same no matter when you buy it or where you buy it. So if you buy it like drinking Grand A and you buy it in San Francisco, it better tastes like it did back home in you know, Florida or something. And so the technology that's involved in how grain goes from this to being malted would kind of blow your mind. So these grains are have to be unsprayed. They are inspected like you wouldn't believe at uh, the receiving plant where the, the malting, malting houses is they're called. Because even big breweries like Anheuser-Busch, they used to uh, subcontract out the malting. That's how precise it is. They, when the seed comes in, it's got to be measured for water content, for this, for that. You know, I mean, you can't have variables. It's got to be exact. Because that beer better taste exactly the same every time it's bottled. So, uh, yeah, save money and just get regular. It'll be non-sprayed. You don't replant barley every year. It's not like alfalfa. You cut it and 
you know. Clackamas, it was so, so good to talk to you. I feel like I need to come and uh, uh, sit at your house and learn for you for a, for a couple months. Um, all, all the places you've walked and uh, the knowledge you have, I uh, really appreciate you sharing that. Thanks for having me on, Steve. I got to go. Okay. Take care, man. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Have a good evening. Hey, Chris, Chris, why don't you plug your, you actually have your online class coming out soon. Do you want to plug that real quick, just on your way out? Sure. Yeah, it's um, next month should be, I'm, I filmed one of the last things um, for yesterday and it's a full online class. And um, some of these people have supported me with a little mini class I did. I'm giving them 100% of their purchase price in that mini class towards the new class. And uh, I'm excited about it, growing as a, as a person who teaches. So uh, thanks for um, yeah, having me on, Steve. And really good to talk to you, Clackamas. What's your what's the oh, you're welcome. Have a good evening. My, oh website? yeah, my my website's chrisTrump.com. And that is not live yet, so you can't find it there, but you can get OHN there and some free downloads and uh, stuff like that. So thanks, Steve. Awesome. Oh, you need any help ever uh starting a worm operation. I'm the guy to talk to because I got it down to where you don't spend a lot of money. All right. I I would I would love to talk to you about that. Maybe can Steve give me your number? Absolutely, absolutely. Be right. more than happy to. Thank yeah, you you're so gonna much. use uh, smart pots instead of building something. How's that? Cool. All right. So you get a hundred gallon uh, worm bin for under twenty five dollars. Wonderful. That's got to appeal to anybody. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Chris. Um, so uh, now, can people use um, <clears throat> sorghum or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff, maybe people that are not in the U.S. or maybe in a, in Canada? Oh, absolutely. Um, what are, or, or yeah, rice? What's the or big what one? The other? Um, in South Africa, sorghum is, uh, we, uh, one of the names here is Milo. And uh, yes, I've, I've, uh, I've bought, purchased organic Milo for mushroom growing. And so then I took some and I malted it uh, to test it out. Yeah, it's a wonder. In fact, there's a beer made in, it's really terrible, but uh, flavor-wise, but there's a beer from South Africa that's actually made from sorghum. So that was interesting. Uh, but yeah, it, it'll work, absolutely. So it's a wonderful grain. It's, it's mainly grown here in the States as a livestock feed, but I understand that uh, in other parts, especially Africa, that uh, there's other uses for it. Not, it isn't strictly livestock. They they make a gluten-free beer out of it here, but it's uh, in Jamaica they grow it for beer because uh, it's it's really hot for wheat and they get a lot of molds and stuff there. So they sure, grow the sure. sorghum instead. That's a red stripe in Jamaica is actually made from sorghum. Yeah, in fact, um, what do they call it? Uh, yeah, sold here as sorghum and then sometimes myelin. I don't remember the why, but red is one of the colors, a, a, red, a, a red variety. In fact, it's one of the heirloom varieties. There's a company in Southern Oregon called, it's an Indian name, uh, Siskiyou Seeds. And they carry black and red heirloom uh, varieties of uh, sorghum. You know, and the plant itself looks, the leaves look so much like corn. It's really remarkable. Uh, in fact, when you drive by it in the summer when they're in full, 
the the stocks are being you know developing the fruit. Um, at first glance, you think you're looking at corn. Go, that's really some odd looking corn, but it's the leaf structure and uh, placement and coloring on the plant that's identical to corn. And I know that uh, like the you know how corn popcorn has that plastic like thing around the 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 kernel. Well, you have that same thing in sorghum. So like in mushroom growing, uh, to use it as a substrate for to make a, a seed spawn, uh, you want to soak it a little bit longer to, to soften it up to get a faster uh, colonization when you use it for that purpose. Good question. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Right, let me uh, let me see what other uh, uh, any thoughts on using uh, shilajat. I think it's like an obsidian powder. Well, it's, uh, I believe what they're talking about is the uh, fulvic uh, from India. Yep. And again, uh, be careful, not careful, just uh, verify the sources, you know, uh, how it's being processed. Uh, can you talk about- I will say uh, this, okay. in, in, the, in the area of fulvic and humic acids, uh, What's that Latin phrase, buyer beware, aviac emptor or something like that. Um, yeah, do your homework on it before you put the money out. Uh, there was a, a question earlier about, and since you, you talked about that, what, is there any particular um, brands or things to look for for both fulvic acid and for peat moss uh, for people to look for to make sure they're getting something that, that's maybe safe or getting something that's a little bit more legit than, than ones that aren't? Sure, on the peat moss, and you want to get sphagnum. And like, let's, you can order that on most uh, operations have shipped to store. So for example, you can, this is obviously is only going to apply in the States, but you can go to, um, uh, what's the name of that hardware? Starts with an A. Uh, Ace? Yeah, Ace Hardware. Go to acehardware.com and they will have sphagnum even if the local store in your area doesn't carry it. And so you pay for it online and then you designate what store you want it shipped to and you don't pay anything for shipping and handling. Whatever the price is, that's what you pay. And Walmart has that. Uh, yeah, I mean, getting uh, the right price, uh, Lowe's. Home Depot will almost always in the springtime have their 3.8 bales, cubic foot bales. And it'll say it on there, Canadians by law from Canada, not here, uh, Canadian Sphagnum Peat Moss Association. And that's the governing body because the, the, the harvest is so tightly controlled in Canada. You can't just decide, well, we got more sales this year, so we need to harvest more. It doesn't work that way. Here's the harvest. Your percentage is this, that's it. So, the number of the big players are, the big one is SunGrow Horticulture. The second biggest is Premier Horticulture. You would know that on a retail level is ProMix. You've seen those products. They're the second largest. But even like SunGrow, they, they have probably 10 different names. My goodness, so again, the, price, the, the name doesn't matter. It's all about the price. And, and as long as it says Canadian Sphagnum Peat Moss association on it then you know it's the legit deal 
if you want to learn more about peat moss, go to the uh, website, Canadian Sphagnum Peat Moss Association. And they have a huge body of work about how it's harvested, when, who gets to, how much is allowed. And so it's a combination of government and industry in Canada that I, I believe are trying to make good decisions about uh, the harvest and what have you. The other products like fulvic and humic, that's even more challenging. So you really want to go to the websites of these places, of these organizations that you want to consider and, and see if they're members of the, the international organizations like the International Humic Association and things like that. I mean, where, where are they at in, in that industry? Are they just buying crap out of Alibaba out of China, you know, for a cheap price and sticking it in, you know, their packaging? Because there's some really terrible stuff uh, through the international brokers. So much just, uh, it's not even, it's just coal that was unfinished by nature. I mean, some really bad, a lot of, uh, what do you call it, uh, hydroxide residues and what have you. So that's a real touchy one. But I have reactors. I guess I'm lagging on my end. Hello? Uh, there we go. Looks like I, I lag a little bit of an internet flip there. Associator dinner, man. Hey, honey.
Happen. There we go. There you go. Right. Uh, I apologize. I'm not sure what happened. I had a quick turn on my backup internet connection. I do apologize, everyone. I uh, so the the question I was uh, asking when my internet died. There was a, someone asked about bioreactors. Have you worked at all with bioreactors for for compost? I have not. No. Okay. Um, and then someone else asked about using aloe directly from the plant for cloning. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in, in the world of uh, commercial horticulture, uh, there's three rooting agents. Salicylic acid, IAA, which is endoacetic acid, and IVA, which is endobutric acetic acid. Two of those are actually, uh, well, two of them are primarily found in, uh, and all plants produce these, but uh, ones that really produce it well is kelp on the IAA and IVA. And you'll find those in different products. Like IVA, you'll find in like a product like Dip and Grow, that particular brand name. And I don't know all of them, but anyway, it's salicylic acid. Is, was the first one developed in 1917, 1918. So if you take an uh, aloe vera frond, that's what they call the leaf, and you cut the uh, jagged thorns off, uh, sides off, and so now you have like a deck of cards. And so you have this gel in the middle and then a tough skin on the top and the bottom. You can take a uh, shish kebab stick on the blunt end, not the point, uh, make a holes in that gel around the edge. You, you have it laying flat on a plate, and so you punch holes in it, and you stick your uh, cut in there, and you leave that overnight. And then the next day, however you do it, I don't care. You know, that's your thing. But uh, go ahead and process it as normal. But that amount will, uh, for this definition, sterilize the the cut and the stock to prevent uh, uh, mold from developing pathogenic fungi uh, and bacteria and viruses. And plus it has the agents that kick in the creation of uh, roots along the shaft. So yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And, and they remain strong. That's the thing. And not only do they hit when they hit, um, but the roots are, are really like, like vermicelli. They're thick and uh, robust. Now, I clone in uh, Rockwell cubes, and I've also used the plugs. They're all made from this at the same plant in Oregon, so it doesn't matter the brand name. Those are made from wood cellulose. 
uh, after everything else in the tree has been used for something. Uh, okay, this is what's left, the, the scraps, if you will. And so those are, uh, but they're inert and uh, they hold water at the right uh, proper uh, amount. But adding a little aloe vera to the process uh, will accelerate the rooting process and keep them healthy until they're ready to, for you to uh, transplant. And I've also known people who uh, like to use the, uh, not my thing, but this, the uh, arrow cloners, the uh, easy cloner, I think is a brand name. They'll add aloe vera to the water. And the only problem there is you really got to watch your mold issues. So, you know, just be cautious that maybe you have to change the water more often or whatever it is that you do for that. But uh, I, I know people that have had success and others that have, it wasn't something that they found particularly uh, beneficial. My, uh, it's, I don't recommend them either. And, uh, and what it comes down to is, is that, you know, if I have a power outage or we have some kind of problem and we have to shut the power off for a little while, you know, those, they're real fragile, right? And they, and not only that, if there is some type of uh, root aphid or, um, you know, some other, you know, pathogen, they can rip through, you know, holes. Uh, whereas when you do it, even on a bigger scale with the uh, keeping them in, in smaller dome trays or, or um, uh, have everything more compartmentalized, um, you know, less chance of anything sp spreading, uh, and um, you know, uh, overall, it just seems to have less problems. Plus, you can survive a power outage as long as you can keep the plants, you know, in in veg, you know. So, um, and especially being out yeah, here I'm in Oklahoma, uh, the uh, you know, we get storms that can knock the power out for a day or two or three, and you know, while we have a generator, uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, <laughs> try to run it as little well, as possible. I, I just want to be clear. I'm not a not repeat underlying bold, not an advocate for uh, that method for a lot of reasons. Uh, besides the ones you mentioned, the one is that well, it's just not. I, I like doing Rocco cubes because those are made from basalt that are heated up to 3,300. The rocks are heated up to 3,300 Fahrenheit. And the threads come off like cotton candy that you saw when you were a child from the sugar. Well, what those strands? So those strands from the basalt are obviously sterilized at 3,300 Fahrenheit, so they're completely inert. So they're not going to add or subtract anything to the, your process. And that's what's used commercially when you go to commercial nurseries, and all this is automated. The, the one thing that's consistent is that they go into Rockwell, the tiny ones, the, the tiny Rockwell cubes that then fit into the larger size. That's just the way it's done. And that's how I learned many decades ago. So um, I'm you know, kind of a creature of habit. You know, when, when something works, uh, you know, I don't need to revisit it. And uh, I've never had problems with Rockwell cubes ever. They hold the exact right balance of water to air. So, uh, ideal for uh, propagation. Like I said, they're sterile. That's the main thing right there is they're sterile. So you've already got the biggest, what's the word? Um, your biggest challenge is, is uh, 
especially in the aero clones, is uh, contamination in that of that tank, or it gets too hot. I know people were building their own; they wouldn't put whatever they did wrong. I mean, it's just a disaster. I think God just put in a Rocco Cube call it a day. This isn't rocket science. So, oh yeah, I used to have a recipe showed how people. <clears throat> you ever been into? I know you have, but the products like Clonex what they charge for their little gel. So this one was, you go, this is a brand name because uh, the plant is not a cacti, it's a, a lily, the uh, aloe vera. So the name of the company is Lily of the Desert. And they have a product uh, line and one of those is organic. And so it comes down to the uh, fungicide, not fungicide, the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, to stop, uh, let's see. Anyway, so in the regular, they use this agent and in uh, citric acid, they use in the organic form. And so you get this, the organic aloe vera gel and you add uh, two teaspoons of uh, a pint, 16 ounces. You add two teaspoons of uh, rock of uh, kelp meal and uh, one teaspoon of uh, folic acid. And you let that sit at room temperature and then you, you know, sh stir and shake it. And then you put it in the back of your refrigerator and it's good for about a year. Now will do at least a thousand cuts and you got less than $10 in the whole damn project. You know, go look at a product in a grocery store, see if they're giving you 16 ounces for, you know, 850. But anyway, yeah, and it's it'll far exceeds anything you're gonna get because you're you're getting the rooting agents from the salicylic acid and the aloe vera. You're getting the uh, two other ones, IBA and IA, from the kelp meal. You got all three. You're dancing um, for very little money. So you got that extra money, go get a you know a Starbucks or something. Yeah, a latte. <laughs> We, we could use it to pay our trimmers more. There you go. Or get new scissors <laughs> for your trimmers or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think once you uh, start using uh, or, or testing out aloe vera with your cuts, you're going to be really pleased at the strength with which they hit and their root systems like bam, you know, take off once, the, you know, it gets going. So I agree with you. I like I like cloning in those trays and big domes. Um, you can isolate problems. You can do testing. Hey, on this one, I did this, and on this tray, I did that. You know, until you find something that's tweaked to your specific uh, water supply. I mean, there's a number of factors. You know, I probably have better water than most people because, like, the water. For, I'm I'm in the oldest city, so we have water trees that go back to like the 1840s. You know, it's all snow melt from Mount Hood. I don't have problems. I mean, but when I lived in Southern California, you know, water was an issue. Christ almighty. How many people you got down there? Imagine what that's like for the water system. You know, to get right. it, you know, available, potable into everybody's home. You know, there's a lot of chemistry going on there. So 
I found, uh, especially on a commercial scale for people that are, are not as experienced, um, setting the domes up and then having them get sprayed once a day, be it with water or, you know, water and a beneficial microbe for either fungal sure. control or insect control. Um, it just makes it kind of easy for them to not screw up and, you know, they don't, they don't forget to spray them. You know, they always get sprayed every day and yeah. it just makes it simple for people to, to do hundreds of stuff, especially if they're new and just, you know, don't know what to do, you know? Well, think about this for a minute. One of the big crops here in Oregon is Christmas trees. And those are all grown from cuts. That's why when you go by a Christmas tree farm, it looks like Xeroxes because every, <laughs> every tree grown is exactly the carbon copy because they are, they're genetic copies of each other. But uh, my point is that they, we sell seven and a half million trees a year. So that means you have to take at least 8 million cuts. And I promise you, they're not, they're not doing them in easy cloners. They don't have quarter million square foot, a quarter million square foot warehouses full of easy cloners doing conifers. I mean, trust me, <laughs> that isn't happening. So uh, a lot of these things that are considered normal or the correct procedure in the cannabis scene they uh they baffle the mind when you start looking at it from you know a think about this an average wholesale nursery when you yeah when you get to the when you get to the super big yeah then then you're you doing know, that stuff this is i'm talking about more of the the kind of small to your average dispensary kind of thing not uh the mega i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you Oh, no, I just meant in, in terms of regular plants, you might sell 45,000 plants a year. So you got to have it simple. And believe it or not, your method is used far more than you'd probably think. You know, uh, some things, okay, tissue culture was the big promise many years ago. And there were some heavy investments in it. Um, come to find out, it's the best way is to, if you know about growing mushrooms on plates, then you, you got uh, propagation, Mary stem propagation down, you're, you're dancing. But it, it proved anyway, all I'm saying is it wasn't, it proved that it wasn't effective on a large scale. And that your method, my method, that what we're talking about, where there's some hands-on, there's some interaction, there's some uh, human monitoring was actually more efficient because there was a higher level of success rate. And um, sometimes in the pursuit of uh, automation and ease, we kind of miss the point of what we're trying to achieve. You know, what you're, we're trying to achieve in this case, and we want roots developed from this healthy piece of, of uh, material from the host plant with as little uh, interruptions in that process as possible. And I think you'll end up with a better plant because you have a healthier cut that has a healthier root development. And when we take it out of an easy cloner and then try to get it in dirt without breaking things, imagine if you're doing, even on a medium scale, say you're doing 100 a week, that's a lot of being careful, isn't it? 
on anyone out of a tray in a, a plug of some kind however you get their plug or the uh rockwell cubes i mean that's simple boom 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 you can really uh you know get it done and get them into your system so and uh, anyone that's ever transplanted something from a dwc into soil knows you know it's gonna and it's going to drop, you know, 30 to 50% of its leaves, depending on the temperature and humidity it is when you transplant it uh, before it finally, you know, readjusts, really? that, wow. you know, new, uh, new pressure. Um, I know that uh, a lot of, a lot of people prefer to buy them that way and do it, but I don't understand why. Um, I, it just stresses the living crap out of the plants. Uh, I just don't see a reason to do that. So, but, uh, but yeah. What are you smoking on? Oh, you'll laugh. Uh, strain it goes back to 84. <laughs> mother clone, mother clone for. It's just an old time. It's a uh, high dominant from and Kandahar, indica. And uh, I think the only thing that would have made me, made me laugh would be if you're like, wedding cake from cookies. <laughs> Oh yeah, really. I, <laughs> I mean, others have heard this, but the first time that I saw cookies was at uh, IC Mag, and somebody posted a picture in a thread, you know. And so I went and looked at it, and I thought it was a joke from like the Onion magazine, the satire, online satire. You know, you bred this, these little tiny nothing buds. This was a goal. Wow. This ought to be cute. And so anyway, as things progress from there, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I, whatever. So tell us about the Canada. I see something like that interests me way more. I love those older school, you know, old school stuff. I'm always asking, especially out here in Oklahoma, you know, having waist length dreads, people will, are a little bit more free with their tongue as far as telling me what they may or may not be doing. Uh, it's one of the benefits of having long dreads, allegedly, of course. Um, and uh, uh, I'm always, at, you know, asking them, "Hey, do you, do you got any old seeds you left in a drawer? You know, I can, I can revive them. I'll give you some fresh ones. You know, I'll revive them and give you, you know, just How let me back cross them for you." How do you revive? Uh, so what I found, is, sure. So what I found is the best, uh, and this I got from. Um, was it a, a, I don't remember which, but I was in California and it was just a seed exchange. Um, but we'll take uh, anything that rapidly germinates. Uh, now the two that I like a lot is um, uh, cucumber seeds or uh, corn seeds, um, but you have to get the mm -hmm. non, um, non the fungicide on the on the seeds, you know, the corn. It's, right. it's kind of hard to find, and you kind of have to buy them in a little packing at the store um, to, to get them that way. Right. But if you can find some, you soak those in a in a whiskey glass or even like a um, just a party glass, uh, and uh, you, you fill that about halfway and soak them overnight. Uh, uh, so fill the cup halfway with seed, and then fill the the water line up maybe about another twenty percent. Most of that, you're going to strain that off and just take that water and then put your cannabis seeds in there and then um, 
uh, just top it off with a little bit of extra fresh water, uh, you know, another 50% fresh water just to dilute that a little bit. And then you can um, take some of those uh, germination hormones that are active, uh, you know, from just being released into the water from that other seed uh, and wake them up. I've, I've managed to wake up some very old seeds, both cannabis and vegetable seeds that were this is just a uh, hundred percent germination rate, but you, you will get like a, you know, 40 to 60% germination rate that way. The corn is of interest to me because, um, in late thirties, uh, botanists uh, discovered what we now call cytokines, cytokines. And the first one was in corn. And so it was named after the Latin name for corn, Zia, so Zia team. And it's not that corn is the only plant or seed that contains uh, cytokinins, but that was the first one. And it's widely used in, uh, in propagation. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, you know, a place that you would really enjoy there's a website called Phyto, a P-H-Y-T-O, Phyto Technology, and it's a lab and a supply house for researchers and scientists and uh, upper division students here in the States. And so you can buy things like a kilo of uh, salicylic acid, under 50 bucks, a kilo. That'll make like 50 gallons of rooting compound. Um, they have the cytokinins, zeatine and others. So since you are really up on some of these specific compounds, even if you didn't want to buy them, at least it would be of interest maybe to look at the selection and to see how others are using and where you then could find those in plant materials. That's how I've done all my stuff is I look at what's being used. Okay, where did it come from? And the majority are plant uh, or synthesized plant compounds. And uh, that's why I like to use kelp in my uh, rooting because of the IAA and the IVA instead of the stuff that's synthesized and then, you know, dip and grow in China and then packed here in the United States. So, uh, yeah, I think you'd have a lot of fun there. You can get some really interesting stuff. Like the, the one compound, uh, the oxen hormone or whatever in alfalfa called uh, Rhea, tricontinol. Anyway, uh, yeah, they have it in this pure form, bring cash, but still uh, you can do some really interesting canopy control uh, projects with that agent. Like for example, so in a, in a typical uh, indoor tent or some kind of hoop house, whatever, it's common practice to top your plants, right? And uh, for canopy control, because you're going to get lateral growth. Here's the thing is, you know, when you do that, you lose several days because the plant just kind of goes into shock. Part of that reason is, is that above the soil line, every function in terms of terpene and terpenoid production is controlled by the uh, Mary stem. That's the, the brain below the soil line. It's the taproot that is 
releasing enzymes to trigger specific responses in the microbial colonies in the soil or call up nutrients, specific elements, calcium, molybdenum, whatever. Above, because of the defense system that the plant is expressed in its uh, production of terpene and terpenoid and ketone production, that's all controlled by the Mary stem. So when we top a plant, that compound that's created to give us lateral growth, we can get the same thing by bending what uh, the, some people call uh, LST, low stress training. That'll still give you that hormone, but it doesn't arrest the plant's development. Try it sometime, side by side, do uh, top one plant and the next one, bend it over and secure it down. Number of ways to do that, especially if you're using like a smart pod. Have you experimented? It, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It just it, it cut out. I thought you were done talking. I apologize. Oh no, I was. That was it. Just uh, yeah, give it a shot. You'll be amazed. You you get the same benefit from the lateral growth, but you won't miss a beat. The plant just keeps on like you didn't even touch it. Um, so have you experimented anything with phycocyanin uh, applications or, or anything like that? Um, it's been something I I've been tinkering with a little bit. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, um, uh, I don't want to keep you the whole night and uh, extremely generous with your knowledge this evening. Um, uh, I know that you have a, um, what, let me pull it up here, a really awesome website, clackamascoots.com. You have a, a very cool blog with really in, uh, good information. Do you want to uh, talk about Can you hear me? No, I can uh, Okay. I apologize. Um, do you want to talk about that? You have a clackamascoot.com, which is your website and blog. You have a lot of really great information on there. Do you want to talk about that on the, uh, and how other ways people can find you uh, here uh, to wrap things up? Uh, no, I just, um, I'm working on a book and it's kind of like a, a last hurrah, uh, but I'll be real blunt with it. Uh, my whole focus is about creating your own compost or thermal, uh, uh, excuse me, vermicompost uh, and, and compost using uh, strategies that will ensure uh, high levels of microbial activity uh, in those materials. Because, you know, I, I really strongly believe that the direction needs to be or should be soil building you can't fix soil. It took a long time to get there to whatever condition that you inherited or buy it or whatever. So it's not going to be an overnight. Uh, well, you're basing that in, Z in Zimbabwe. You know, you have decades and decades of uh, agricultural practices that weren't, you know, helpful to what you're trying to achieve now. And there's nothing that you can go buy and dump it on there and go see it's fixed. There's a whole bunch of approaches. And I think things like, you know, the uh, using cover crops, uh, micro remediation, 
all those things can work hand in hand to bring the soil back to and increase its tilth to make the food more nutrient dense. And that's really the goal um, in, in areas of the world where we have incredible hunger and children dying. Diarrhea is the biggest uh, killer of children in this uh, world. And a lot of that is diet related. And um, I just, I don't know how to say this nicely, but I don't really give a shit about Johnny getting his dank on, you know. Um, I'm about trying to help people learn to grow food because I think it may be a skill that might be really beneficial in a couple of years. You, I mean, if you were close to this in terms of uh, like seed companies, I don't mean cannabis seeds, but I mean, you know, vegetable seeds were sold out this year. In this pandemic, people flipped. You can't even find worms in the United States right now, much less cocoons. Everything is short tools. I mean, people went crazy with buying garden things to grow their own food. And uh, my hope is that they make good decisions, you know, or better decisions than a lot of the people in the cannabis uh, community who get, seem to get swayed here and there because of, I don't know, the bottle or the, the promotional, you know, deal. I just think we need, it would be helpful if, if we all return to a, a place of science. You know, science has a place and this is about biology, not chemistry. Like if I had a message, that would be it. Growing plants is about biology, not chemistry. Is chemistry a part? Sure is. But not nearly the part that the fertilizer salesman wants you to think it is. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. Well, it's like you, you have to, you know, you, you have to have some amount of base nutrient there, but then that can be provided either from that or from, from the organic input or whatever it is. But without the, to the plant, you know, that's the reason why hydro people run such crazy high part per million numbers versus the organic people when you look at the, the breakdown of it. So, uh, uh, you know, easy comparable scale, you know, you can run much lower actual, you know, PPMs. So anyways, uh, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Uh, we really stoked to have you on. You're definitely someone who was on our list of people to, to have on. And then this evening uh, was very fortuitous to have you on. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on and, and drop a bunch of knowledge on us and uh, uh, help uh, teach everybody uh, all about uh, all the wonderful things that you've been doing. Well, thank you very much. And likewise, I'm really impressed. Uh, what an opportunity to go to, uh, as we used to call it, the dark continent. Nothing to do with race, I'm talking about. That was the name in the 19th century. I used to have a strain called the dark it's continent. Still. So, uh, yeah, it was one of my favorites. The ugliest weed in the world. If you saw it today, I mean, no bag appeal whatsoever. Stuff was just ass kicking, though. That's what is really funny. Everything today, it's all about style over substance. You know, I don't give it. Well, when you when you when you fly over it at night, uh, you know, there's no lights. Yeah, you know, I think in that in that regard, that description very much is real. Yeah, well, really, I'm I'm really impressed with uh, the work that you're doing with uh, regular folk. 
you know, trying to make their lives better. That's something to be admired. And uh, I wish you nothing but uh, the best in your endeavors for sure. Thanks. We love having you on. We'd love to, to book you on again sometime, hopefully with a little more heads up than this time. <laughs> okay, no problem. I had a great day. It was at the beach and I went to the snow and the, the woods and yeah, it was a wonderful day. So, well, thanks for ending. Mind, that's all you, all you can hope for, you know. <laughs> well, thanks. All for right, man. Have it. Take it easy. Bye bye. Appreciate it. Thanks.